Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 11 to 40. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then he was going to return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, You are also to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you were an exacting man. You take up what you did, not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having... And having uh, the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as the Lord told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The word of the Lord. In last week's reading from Luke chapter 19, uh, we read about the conversion of Zacchaeus. 
And it was a joyous event. Zacchaeus, you know, getting up in the tree and watching Jesus come. Jesus seeing him up there and saying, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house. And so Zacchaeus threw a party for Jesus. And he was so excited that Jesus came because this was all part of Zacchaeus' spiritual journey. Some things have been going on. We don't know what. But at that moment, it just all came to fruition. And Zacchaeus repented before Christ and said, I'm going to give half of all of my wealth to the poor. And of the half that I'm keeping, I will pay back four times what I cheated anybody out of when I was as a tax collector. And I make that promise. And there was tremendous joy and rejoicing. And in that, Jesus himself ended that story saying, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, this would be the perfect moment when you want to leave people on an upbeat uh, to go directly into uh, uh, before the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, where Jesus is, is getting on this donkey that no one has ever ridden. Uh, the disciples have put their coats on it, and he is riding on that. And, and the disciples whose coats weren't on the donkey were putting their coats down so the donkey could ride over it. And, and they were putting branches down. And all, of this, and all the time they were shouting Hosanna and singing praise songs and, and rejoicing that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. But between the end of last week's story... And uh, the rejoicing of the disciples, and, and, and we're reminded that it, the Jesus affirmed this rejoicing. The Pharisees said, Jesus, you've got you to pull rein your disciples in. I mean, this is crazy. They're, just, they're, out, they're beside themselves. And if Jesus, of course, had been telling his disciples, you know, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be judged and rejected and killed. You, you, you've been hearing me say that, Right. But they were all excited and they were shouting hosannas. Jesus could have said, you know, whatever you want to say to them, go ahead and say, I've been talking my head off to them and they're not listening to me at all. But instead he said, you know, if they were to be quiet, the very stones or chicken McNuggets or whatever, the <laughs> would cry out in praise because what was happening was a great thing. The king... This was the beginning of the beginning uh, of the king coming into Jerusalem. It was a promise, a foretaste of what Jesus was coming to do. But as much as a call to repentance and the salvation of those who do repent is part of the gospel message, as much as the grace of God and the forgiveness of debt and the promise of an eternal life is part of the gospel message, the gospel message also includes a warning. It was the purpose of Jesus' mission to seek out and to save the lost. And for his part, it is God's desire to save all the lost. Paul says that and uh, uh, repeats that again in, in uh, one of the epistles to Timothy. He says, God desires that all men be saved. The Pharisees wouldn't believe that God's standards were so low that he sought and saved such unwelcomed outcasts as traitorous tax collectors, men who betrayed their own people to the pagans in Rome. But Jesus made it clear that Zacchaeus was 
just exactly the sort of lost man that Jesus was seeking to save. If Zacchaeus' repentance was an example of how even the most unlikely sinner can receive the salvation that Jesus offers, this week's parable is a warning. A warning that describes what will keep a person out of the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a dark parable, actually. It's the retelling of a sermon illustration that Jesus has told before. Matthew recounts the same sermon illustration. Remember, Jesus is going from town to town. There's no, there's no video recording of Jesus. There's no podcast uh, that people are tuning into. There's no printing press to get his sermons out into the countryside as he preaches them. So every time he speaks to a group, he's speaking to people who probably haven't heard anything that he's said. They've heard about him, but they haven't heard his messages yet. So he will take his best sermon illustrations and repeat them. And in Matthew, he talks about the, four, the three servants who received different talents of gold. And a talent of gold is, is a, a princely sum. It's, it's, it's more than, than most people in a village would make in a lifetime. Uh, but in this parable, that same story is being told with a bit of a twist. First of all, it's a story within a story, like one of those Russian dolls, you know, where you open up and there's another little Russian lady inside uh, the babushka that you open. This has two stories. One of them is, uh, of course, the one that we spend the most time on about the, the faithless, unprofitable servant. But the other story is the overarching story that, of this nobleman who is going to become a king who is going to get affirmation of his, uh, his uh, inheritance of a region, of a group of people, a province of people who will become his kingdom. And the people in that kingdom have rejected him. And what happens to them? This, this, pro, this uh, parable is a warning. And Jesus tells it to his disciples and all those who are following him as they head towards Jerusalem. Just because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost doesn't mean that there won't be any who are lost. The offer of the gospel can be rejected. And it's important that we all know that. That's part of the gospel message. One of the chilling lessons of this parable is the expectation of judgment. That no one is going to be carried or dragged, kicking and streaming into the kingdom of God. It will be a conscious decision on their part, and there is a cost. You have to surrender all that you are to Jesus Christ and Him as Lord as well as Savior. What does it look like then to reject God's salvation? And that's kind of what this parable is about. Jesus gives an answer to that in today's parable. A nobleman appoints ten servants to do business on his behalf in a region that he is about to inherit as a kingdom. Each of his servants are given a small working portion. They've been given a mina. The, the, the amounts of money that are being given here are smallish sums, like a household budget. Not like the talent of gold, which was really more of a, a gross national product in some countries. 
This is, these are working, uh, a working uh, uh, outlay of cash, kind of petty cash. He, each of them are given a small working portion of their master's wealth with which they are to buy, lend, or invest in the people and businesses of his new kingdom. We are told, almost as an aside, that the people of the region have rejected the nobleman as their king and have made a petition to reject him formally. The last line of the parable describes the terrible sentence of judgment that awaits his rebels, slaughter. Humankind has made it very clear that we reject the person and the authority of our true king, who is God himself. Jesus' salvation for those who repent of this rebellion is that we are saved from the sentence of justice, which is death. The rebellious nature of the people in the parable towards their king means that his servants, and this is kind of a, a, a side part of the story, his servants can expect to experience some animosity as an, ex, an additional challenge to their task of successfully investing their master's wealth. When the nobleman returns, he is the new king, and he calls all of his servants to account for their efforts. All but one servant can show a return on the money they were given to invest on their master's behalf, and they are all rewarded handsomely, all out of proportion to the return that they earned. They were given what amounted to a household budget to work with, uh, they, they, they sometimes doubled it or increased it, but in response and in, in reward for what they did, they were given kingdoms, they were given whole regions to be governors over. In other words, the reward that their master gave them was all out of proportion to any additions they made to the master's wealth. They were given princely wealth in exchange for pocket money. However, the unprofitable servant wrapped the money his masters gave him in a handkerchief that he kept on his person instead of putting it to work. He treated it as his treasure. Now, from the ancient Near East, the rabbinic writings from this time have, uh, have uh, informed God, biblical scholars other commentaries, not just on this text, but just general rabbinic writings, require that if you are given money or treasure in trust for another person, you are liable for what happens while it's in your care. If you don't secure it, meaning at least burying it in the ground. The, steward, the, the servant didn't bury it. He had it wrapped in a hanky and was keeping it. And I can't help but think that the steward was seeing this as a nest egg for himself in case his master didn't return. Or if he did return, he didn't return as a king. When the master asked him why he, didn't, he chose not to risk what he was given by committed, committing to some sort of specific investment opportunity or strategy, the steward replied in verse 21, I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting, that means you are a harsh, 
You are a hard, you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. Now the faithful servant, or the fearful servant, excused himself by shifting the blame for his own failure onto his master, whom he described as a conniving cheat who exploits his people and then claims the profit that they have made for himself. But as we've just seen in this parable, the master's reward of the faithful servants reveals that this is a lie. He rewarded them all out of proportion to what they provided for him. They gave him pocket change. He gave them whole cities. The fearful steward declared that he was a victim of the terror caused by his master's fearful reputation. This is all your fault. However, the master was not moved by the attempt to shift blame and discerns immediately the flaw in the servant's argument. If he was indeed actually afraid of his master's reputation, which might generate some empathy or sympathy, then why did he not at least put the money in the hands of the moneylenders, like the ones that were at the temple that Jesus drove out? Why did he not put it in their care so that they could do his job for him without risk and still provide at least some return on the investment? The master concluded, or must have concluded, and this is conjecture on my part, but it seems to me the master concluded that far from being afraid of his master, the servant showed contempt for him by hoarding wealth that wasn't his and refusing to employ it in obedience to his master. The little that the unprofitable servant was keeping as if it were his own always belonged to the master, which made his decision to preserve it, not take risk with it, ironic and foolish. As it turned out, what he hoarded in his handkerchief, as if it was his, wasn't worth anything to him unless he put it at risk and joined the work of his master's enterprise. Only the interest on an investment would have benefited the servant. Only what he invested in God's kingdom and God's work would have made what he had valuable to that servant. If the sin of humanity as a whole looks like the open act of rejection and rebellion of the people in that town in this parable, our sin as individuals often looks something like the passive-aggressive selfishness of this unfaithful servant. Whether he was motivated by fear or resentment or contempt, the profitless servant lost everything he hoarded, hoarded as his own, and it was divided up and given to faithful servants. According to Jesus, those who hoard their life and all of its resources wrapping it up in a handkerchief as if it was theirs to keep for themselves, 
will find that the only value it might have had to them was the return it might have earned by obeying God and investing their lives, their energies, their resources in his kingdom. Our lives are like loaves of bread. If we allow ourselves to be divided out by God and it becomes nourishment to other people, we will share in God's joy and glory because that is what he has done. He became, he became the bread of life for all of us. We are to be like that little boy's barley loaves that were given to Jesus so that he could bless them, break them, and feed not only the little boy, not just his family and his neighbors, but thousands of people. If we keep ourselves tucked away and saved for a future that never comes, our lives will mold away and become useless to others and therefore useless to us. This week's reading concludes with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All that shouting. Now, you know, those of you, particularly many of you who have cleaned the church, know that on Easter morning, I have in the past couple of years, and I've been, I'm, I'm repent of it, and I will not do it again. <laughs> I've been providing handheld confetti cannons <laughs> to shoot off and, um, for Easter. But I, the original, the first time I ever did that was with children as part of a, a, a sermon illustration, and they came up, and I told the story of the Passover because that's when, that's when it was really happening. That's when the cheering was going on and we had them shoot off con- confetti guns. Uh, and, and because this was a celebration, this was an event of rejoicing. This seemed to be everything coming together. And you know, there was enormous truth in that desire and in that hope. It, it wasn't going to turn out the way the disciples thought it was. The disciples risked their very lives on the kingdom of heaven, cheering Jesus openly before all of their enemies. They cheered the king they served and the king they believed in. Now, as it turns out, they totally misread the direction of the next three days of their life together. But the risk they took and the cheers they shouted were received by their king and affirmed by him saying that if they had kept quiet, the very rocks would have shouted out in praise. But cheering and adoration, the the cheering and adoration of that moment meant something because it was grounded in three years of shared hardships, shared joys, shared spoken truths and prayerful healings, a shared life that despite all of the cost to those who participated was abundant and good and none of them regretted it. Every one of them stood by it. And when they had to pay for their, pay for their belief with their own lives, they were willing to do it <coughs> because they had no choice. They knew what they knew. And they knew who Jesus was and they couldn't, they couldn't deny him and they wouldn't let go of the life that he promised. The disciples joined themselves to the person, to the heart, and to the daily work 
of their king. <coughs> Jesus offers salvation. Zacchaeus, a very un- improbable, unlikely candidate, accepted that offer and became, and Jesus said, today salvation uh, comes to this house. And, and, and I came to seek people just like this. Of the salvation that Jesus offers us, Evelyn Underhill, and I, and I read this in my devotions earlier this week, a quote from her, Evelyn Underhill lived about 100 years ago, uh, was a teacher at spiritual retreats in England about the same time, a little before C.S. Lewis, uh, but a contemporary, uh, a, a powerful Christian writer <clears throat> who wrote deeply about Christian spirituality and the pursuit of that spirituality. So you would have the expectation that she would be big into the kind of the meditation and the, the adoration part of worship. And she was, but she says more than that. She said, more is required of those who wake up, those who are lost and then found and repent, of those who wake up to reality than the passive adoration of God or intimate communion with God. Those responses, great as they are, do not cover the purpose of our creation. The riches and beauty of the spiritual landscape are not disclosed to us in order that we might sit in the sun parlor, be grateful for the excellent hospitality, and contemplate the glorious view. Some people suppose that the spiritual life mainly consists of doing that. God provides the spectacle. We gaze with reverent appreciation from our comfortable seats and call this procedure worship. No idea of our situation could be more mistaken than this. Our place is not in the auditorium, but on the stage. Or, as the case may be, the cornfield, or the workshop, or the study, or the laboratory. Because we ourselves form part of the creative apparatus of God. For though we may renounce the world for ourselves, we have to accept it as the sphere in which we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and try to do the will of God. Now, whether our stage, that we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit, and whether our stage is a classroom or a homeschool that we teach in, the building site that we construct, the office we do business in, or the store in which we greet our customers, We are in a position to invest ourselves in Christ's name, looking to be part of his work in someone else's life, in the lives of others, co-workers, clients, family members or friends, customers, or even strangers that we just bump into. The sums of money, again, The sums of money referred to in this version of Jesus' parable are relatively small, everyday amounts of money, more like pocket money than a fortune. All of us have spiritual pocket money. 
that can be invested in our Master's kingdom purposes. And all of it came from our Master. Don't resent and don't fear God's claim on your life. It's the claim, it's a claim of love, a claim of joy, a family, a family togetherness. He's not trying to rob you. He's not trying to keep you from finding some secret happiness that he's trying to keep from you. He's trying to trade with you. He wants you to trade your pocket full of change that you've got wrapped up in a hanky, which he provided for you in the first place, to exchange that for a life full of wealth that you can't lose, that you can't squander, that when the kingdom, when the king is revealed and the kingdom comes, you will, you will trade in for wealth that is beyond, literally beyond our capacity to imagine it right now. With that in mind, I'll close with Jesus' words to the church, a specific church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and following, but really Jesus' word to all the churches in America. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. The eye salve, an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that knocking at the door is something that's going on right now. It is not, you're not knocking at Zacchaeus' door or the sinner's door right here. In this story, your word right now is describing you are knocking at our hearts that we have bolted, Lord. There are many hurts and harms in the world and we do need to protect our heart from them. But sometimes we keep our hearts bolted against you and your presence. And we forget that all of the wealth that we have was yours to begin with on loan. And that nothing that we have is worth anything unless it is invested in your work and begins to turn a dividend in the lives of other people and in the salvation that makes up your kingdom. Lord God, help us to see things as you see them and to be always repenting, to keep the joints limber so that we're always coming and turning back to you and refocusing to see things as you see them so that we might be instructed and changed and even rebuked by your spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.